it is the case that we have been considering on the Sunday evening lessons now for the, this being the fourth, fourth occasion, the making of the Bible, the features and considerations that touch so strongly that document th that you hold on your lap. The Bible, of course, as you and I just noted in prayer, is something for which we're so very thankful. It is a document, of course, that is the instruction that leads us to heaven, telling us how to live and giving us the information necessary to conduct ourselves in relation to others and to organize the church as it ought to be done. Surely, as you think about all of those things, it perhaps is fair to say that the making of the Bible is an interesting subject. On the very first occasion, some three weeks ago, we looked at the considerations about the Holy Word of God itself what both the Old and the New Testament say about it. And then the week following that, we looked with some care at writing. What is true about the way that individuals began to write even the nature of the Word of God? The week following that, we looked at the Old Testament. This, of course, was last Sunday evening. What about those 39 books? Among other things, I believe we were impressed with the fact that although those books were written so very long ago, you and I still have those documents, every one of them and no extras, and those are the very documents that God intended for us to always have. Tonight we come to the New Testament, as you can well tell, and I would at least envision this to be the first of two that deal with the New Testament. The New Testament, of course, those 27 books that you and I look to as the law for the day, today, the particular distinct matters that God would have us to appreciate well, what about the writing of those 27 books? Again, are there others that we should fear or not there that should be? Could it be that some of these are not to be trusted? I would submit to you that although we might pass through life and perhaps even for long stretches not give those kinds of questions much thought, I believe it would be greatly encouraging to us to at least be reminded how great a treasure the 27 New Testament books are. On this next slide, which primarily is a brief rehearsal of some of those things in the series so far, it is to be noted that as we're going to launch into the New Testament tonight, I would ask you to at least right now ponder how thankful you are for those books. Ponder how sweet it is to have access to them. This opening slide, or at least this next slide, will be one in which let's place the New Testament in terms of its divisions, much like we did for the Old Testament last week. You may notice, of course, the New, New Testament consists of those books maybe you memorized from an early age, commencing with Matthew and terminating with Revelation. We find in those books four divisions. There are first the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four distinct accounts of the greatest life ever lived. Four distinct accounts about the perfectness, the way in which He dealt with others, and the manner in which He set forth the absolute truthfulness of God in all the matters that God revealed. Those four accounts harmonize beautifully. They present four picturesque pieces. And putting them together, you and I can appreciate indeed that grand life of Jesus Christ. You'll notice following them, though, we immediately observe that all four of them end with his death. All four of them give him the information and set before us the fact that he died on a cross. That movement that he began, one might immediately wonder, did it continue? And as we turn the book to the book of Acts, we now appreciate that not only did he die, he was resurrected from the dead. 
And in this next book, we find the Acts of the Apostles, what they did primarily after His ascension. We find the establishment of the church, the conversion accounts of ten individuals or groups in that book, and we find the background of so many New Testament books that follow. As we study the book of Acts, then we come face to face with exactly, by way of example, what to do to be saved. At that point, we then cover or at least encounter 21 epistles, beginning with Romans and ending with Jude. We find book after book that details daily how to live the life of, of a Christian, how to act, what to say, how to think, and how to conduct oneself. And those books, of course, not to say the other New Testament books don't, but we learn about how the ongoing features of the church are to be done. Amazing, isn't it? that we then have come to only one book left. The first four books again, we learn about the life of Christ. The book of Acts, how to become a Christian. The 21 epistles that follow, how to live the Christian life. The only thing left, how to die in Christ. How to go home to glory. How to close the sojourn in this flesh and to leave this place ready and the great reward that awaits the faithful. The book of Revelation closes it all. That 27th book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, gives us a panoramic view of the ultimate victory of good over evil, heaven over hell, and of course, God over the devil. And as we close the sacred scriptures with it, that ends it. There are no appendices, there are no other books that enter in as additional descriptions. No wonder as you look at all of them, you might at least reconsider, so when were those books written? The New Testament books don't date themselves in most cases. Some of them have information within them that do give us a rather strong inclination of when they were written. It may well appear the earliest of all of them was the Gospel of Mark and the book of 1 Thessalonians. In fact, as you think about them in terms of the nature of what's described and the incidents recorded in them, we may well have those two as the earliest when it certainly seems Mark was the first gospel account written. As far as the epistles, perhaps, again, 1 Thessalonians. If we had to perhaps beg a particular date, maybe somewhere between 50 and 53 A.D., you'll notice that put them a little over 20 years after the death of Christ, a little over 20 years after the establishment of the church. What about the last book? It certainly seems the writings of John are the last ones, perhaps the gospel according to John and the Revelation. Suffice it to say, maybe, again, it's certainly not something that the books date themselves. Maybe in the last decade of the first century is when the Revelation was written. It certainly appears around 95 to 96 A.D. If that be true, then all of the 27 New Testament books were written in a span as you can well tell, of less than 50 years. But yet how they've transformed the world. How they have affected so powerfully and productively the precious souls of so many in the intervening centuries. You'll notice near the bottom, at this point, even in light of what I just said, isn't it still remarkable? That means the very last one, the Revelation, was still written over 1,900 years ago. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to think that even the last one was written that long ago and yet you and I still have it. We're still able to read all of them and we're able to appreciate the treasure that they genuinely are.
No wonder as you come near the bottom, having looked at those divisions with me, that does ask us to think tonight, what about the rest of the lesson? What about those earliest manuscripts of the New Testament? What about the considerations that are to be found in them and with respect to them? This next slide will begin to lead us along that particular journey. Because the manuscripts, as it relates to the New Testament, have an amazing story all their own. Beginning with the top of that slide, we should appreciate, of course, the very words of the Master as He instructed the apostles in John 16, 13. Prior to His own crucifixion, He challenged and commissioned them with these unforgettable words. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but that which He speaketh, that statement of John 16, 13, reminding us that the Comforter was going to prompt them into the movement of all the truth, and that is the place to which they would be led. As those apostles and the other inspired New Testament writers began to then set before us the nature of what it was the Spirit revealed to them, it brings us to note these things. On a few occasions, the New Testament brings to our appreciation the fact it was written. In Romans 16.22, as well as 1 Peter 5, we notice there explicit statements informing us that those truths were written. It's not that they were simply passed by oral word of mouth. It's not that they were presented by way of a dream. The time came, they were written. Immediately, though, you and I would observe this. When they were written, that was long before there was any Xerox machines and long before there was any other mechanical means of copying. They, any copies, had to be made by hand. Any copies of those precious original autographs had to be made by hand. Think about what a need there would have been for copies. After all, written on those first kinds of materials, the originals would have been very fragile they likely wouldn't have lasted too terribly long before they would have disintegrated. Not only that, obviously there was a great interest in widespread exposure to those eternal truths. Not only did the church in Ephesus need to know those things, the churches in Colossae and the other churches of the, of, of the Revelation book needed it. Easy to see that it would have been a very needful or at least a very valuable thing to have copies of those original autographs. One last thing you might notice, as those copies were made, what a precious preservation they made of that original proof that God had revealed. You'll notice some categories that I've asked you to consider, at least have brought before our, our attention. Categories like these. Now I've divided these into several groups, and the first are the unshields. A very unusual word, but U-N-C-I-A-L-S. And that particular strange word has to do with the oldest surviving manuscripts that you and I have of the New Testament, the unshields. And here are just a very few descriptive features of it. These are the oldest New Testaments that we have. You'll notice they're dated back in most cases to the 4th century. That puts them only a couple of hundred years following the very nature of when they were written. Another thing to notice, these were written in all capital letters, these unshields were. 
And finally, you might notice we have roughly 250 in terms of number of these unshields in, in present existence. As you think then about holding in your hand a document that old, and yet contained in it's the book of Mark, or the book of Romans, or the book of 1 Corinthians, or maybe the book of 1 John, and yet there are a number of libraries around the world that possess one of these. Again, roughly 250 in number. Some of them are even in our country. But not only are these unshields very powerful evidence because they contain the oldest text of the New Testament that we have, it is to them we might add the cursives. I might ask you to notice carefully these are much, much more recent in terms of their date. The cursives are dated again around the 9th century, so roughly 500 years after the unshields. But yet, as individuals had copied scriptures, the curses are written in a very different style. Maybe you and I remember in school that the teacher taught us how to write in cursive. Well, these curses were not written in all capital letters like the unshields were. Over time, people had begun to copy things in a much more flowing style. And so the smaller letters were used, and that was known as these cursives. As you contemplate the nature of those curses, you might notice how many of them we have. The number is at least on the order of 2,800 of these old cursive documents. Even that would be a bit impressive, wouldn't it? To hold in your hand or at least be able to look at a document, a New Testament that's over 1,000 years old. Doesn't it highlight for us there were people who were interested in the, in the Word of God and copies of it were being made beyond the cursives and beyond the unshields. Notice the lectionaries with me. Now, the lectionaries, as you can well tell, was a particular document that was used in public worship. In other words, when the time in worship came for the public reading of the Scriptures, a lectionary was prepared, and that lectionary contained the Scriptures for that particular Sunday. And that was true on Sunday after Sunday, and you and I to this day have over 2,000 old copies of lectionaries in which copies of scriptures to be used in public worship were recorded and presented. Amazing, isn't it? By now, as you start adding up all of these things, there's even possibility of adding additional references and evidences as it relates to the original New Testament. What about the early Christian writers? Now let's be quick to note these now were not inspired. But individuals who often in their discourses and in their correspondence with other individuals would quote exact parts of the Bible and ask questions about it. It has in fact been noted that even if we didn't have any of the old unshields, simply by virtue of the references in those early Christian writers, one could duplicate the entirety of the New Testament. Because they referred to it, asking questions about it, and making observations about it. By itself, maybe the last thought on that slide would be this interesting consideration. When you and I think about the various languages spoken around the world and the need for the Scriptures in those inherent languages, even Acts chapter 2 makes reference to all those groups of people gathered on the day of Pentecost. It wasn't long... And you and I might imagine the Scriptures began to be copied into other languages, be it German or be it some other kinds of languages around the world. 
And sometimes we still have access to ancient copies in those other languages. This next slide takes all of that a little bit more carefully into some detail. I might point out that as I was doing research in preparation for this particular lesson, I found it a little bit interesting that old characteristics and old manuscripts are still being found. In fact, you might remember, I had missed this on the news, but if any one of you may recall, it was now less than three years ago that there was a very old manuscript. It was a fragment containing a portion of the New Testament. And as individuals began to study it and those scholars began to give it consideration, they ultimately have reached a conclusion. This little fragment is dated into the first century meaning it was contemporaneous with the actual writing of these 27 New Testament books. I find that astounding. I think that's so amazing that here scholars and archaeologists are still finding access to documents that are in harmony with the very nature of these books you and I treasure so much. Beyond that, might I ask you to notice, here are three of the most important of the unshields. Now, recall a moment ago, we listed these as the oldest complete copies of the New Testament that we have. The first one, the so-called Vatican Manuscript. You might notice from the very name, it tells us where today this is housed. The Catholic Church is the one that owns it. It's housed at the Vatican in Rome. They have, in fact, had it for at least, or at least since the year 1481. As you think about their consideration of having this old copy of the New Testament, I might ask you to at least consider that it's a very sad thing that for hundreds of years they would permit nobody to even see it. Even scholars who requested a few hours' access to study it were refused. The Catholic Church guarded it so closely and in fact did so in almost secrecy to as much as they could. Surely, in light of that, you and I might notice that finally it was published in 1890. 400, over 400 years later, as you consider the publishment of it again, might we not forget that this was dated, this unshield, to the 4th century. Now, that's the oldest complete copy that we have. As you think about that old copy, notice how it relates to the second one, the so-called Sinaitic Manuscript. Now, sometimes as you and I encounter references to these old New Testament manuscripts, maybe it's fair to give some thought to this one. This one has a rather interesting story behind it. Constantine Tischendorf, an ancient scholar, discovered it by accident. He was visiting a monastery on Mount Sinai, the very same Mount Sinai mentioned by way of Moses in the Old Testament, but a monastery exists there, and he found some old documents. As he asked about them and was given access to at least consider them, you can imagine the joy that he felt when he started reading it and recognized what it was. Some of the monks and others apparently didn't fully appreciate what it was they had. At any rate, now we appreciate it too as an exceedingly old copy of the New Testament. I would ask you to note the date. It was in the 1840s to 1850s that Tischendorf discovered it, and of course soon thereafter, it was really in the 1860s before he was given full access to it, 
And now we appreciate again an old copy, a very old one. Those two I might mention, the Vatican and the Sinaitic Manuscript, are those upon which all others look for convergence. A somewhat later one is the Alexandrian Manuscript. As you can see, again, perhaps a century or so later, it too affords a great deal of consideration about the sweetness and the, uh, and the old consideration of what it was in those manuscripts. Maybe having said those three, I would ask you to think about something that at least sometimes is an interesting reflection. We noted a moment ago the date when the, the Vatican manuscript and the Sinaitic was, was discovered and ultimately utilized. Did you notice that it occurs after when the King James Version was printed and published? King James authorized the presentation of the King James Version in 1611 and in the years following. And yet those two of the oldest manuscripts weren't discovered or at least weren't allowed to be utilized for well over 200 years later. For that reason, some will at least consider very interestingly that there are better renderings such as the American Standard. Now, let's certainly not appreciate that one can still make his or her way to heaven using the King James translation. All the features that relate to the plan of salvation and all the specific characteristics about the organization of the church are still correct. But the finest renderings really would make use of the oldest manuscripts. For that reason, we'll talk a little about that in some of the features next Sunday evening. It is interesting as we transition to the next slide, I thought you might want to see some pictures. Now, I know the reading is not something you and I would be able to make much out of, but here's a picture of the Vatican manuscript and the writing that occurs on it. You'll notice at the top I've tried to give you a heading about what New Testament books those are. The left one, Hebrews and, th and portions of 2 Thessalonians. On the right, the book of 2 John in its entirety. That particular manuscript, what about another one? Here's the Sinaitic manuscript, or at least portions of it. In the left, a section of Luke chapter 11. And on the right, Matthew chapter 6. As you look at them, and again, appreciate the old nature of what is there. It really is phenomenal, isn't it? One more time. Here's the Alexandrian manuscript. You'll notice on the left, a portion of the book of Luke. And on the right, portions of both 2 Peter and 1 John. As you look at all of those considerations, and if you do some research and look in various books, you'll have many comments and developments concerning them. Our study for tonight brings us to note some evidences. So far, we've looked at a number of facts and a number of considerations about these old manuscripts. But I would ask you to at least think in passing about this we shouldn't lose sight again of the fact these books were written over 1,900 years ago. That's when the originals were, were presented. And through the years, copies have been made. How trustworthy is the document you and I are now holding? How closely does it ring true to what the originals were? I would ask that you perhaps think of it in passing from the following set of evidences. First of all, maybe each of us can at least recollect that in school there are times when we still ask our students to read ancient documents. I've listed just a few. 
the works of Plato. Maybe you remember studying that famous philosopher of ancient Greece, Plato. Or maybe you remember Socrates. Literature professors are very fond of Homer. They like, in fact, to have students learn and read the particular works of him. And to this day, they are lifted so high for their scholarly rapport and for the literature which they present. In addition to them, one could mention perhaps others, two that are lesser known, both Tacitus and Sophocles. As you think about all of them, I would ask you to ponder, when were their writings written? How old are those documents? We ask our students to read Plato, so how many copies of ancient Plato do we have? We invite our students to read Homer. How many copies of old Homer, of, of the writings of Homer do we have? I prepared a little table. There'll be quite a bit of information on it. I would like for you to consider this. Many statements on that might in fact be noted. I'm going to draw your attention to a few of the features of it. Reading down the leftmost column are some ancient writers, some of whom we've listed to nine and many others that we haven't. In the next column is the date when their writings were written. In the next column is the earliest copy of the writings of those individuals. In the next column is the time span until today, that is to say when they were written until, until, or rather the earliest copy we have until today. Finally, in the next column is the number of copies of that individual's writings that we currently have. And finally, in the very right column, a sense of the accuracy that might well be designated with respect to that person's writings. Now looking at them one by one, maybe we know little about Lucretius, Maybe we know little about Pliny, but I might say those in scholarly circles often refer to Pliny. If we just start with him, you'll notice that he lived in 61 to 113 A.D., his lifespan. The earliest copy of his writings that we have is dated at 850 A.D. You'll notice that means 750 years elapsed between when he died and the, most, and the earliest copy we have of his writings. Now, might I say, we have only seven copies of anything Pliny ever wrote. Only seven. And yet, to my knowledge, there isn't a scholar in the world that would question Pliny. There isn't a scholar that would doubt that he lived. There isn't a scholar that would doubt that he wrote. There isn't a scholar that would question what, what he wrote in terms of those documents. And they base that on seven copies. Look on down the list. Plato, we mentioned him a moment ago arguably one of the most famous of the Greek philosophers. And yet, in terms of Plato, notice he lived several hundred years B.C., even before Jesus did. In addition, though, notice this. The earliest copy of his writing that we have is dated 900 A.D., a full 1,200 years at least after he died. We only have seven copies of Plato. That's it. And to my knowledge, there isn't a person that would question him, not a person that would doubt that he lived and that he wrote and that the things that he wrote would be trustworthy. That is to say, it would be reliable. Look on down the list. One could mention Demosthenes, Herodotus, Suetonus, Thucydides. As you look at all of them, 
you begin to see a very quick pattern. In every case, hundreds of years elapse between when that person wrote and the earliest copy we've got. And in furthermore, in no case do we have even as many as double-digit numbers of copies. Not a single one of them. And yet we give the greatest respect to their writings. We treasure them. In many cases, scholars turn to them for answers. At this point, as you complete that list, what if we go to the next one? The next one, I hope, will bring us to an amazing conclusion. I chose, again, several other writers and individuals. Starting at the top, Aristophanes, even Caesar. Our students in history classes often learn much about Julius Caesar. One of the most famous of the Caesars of the Roman Empire, of course. And yet, as you notice, a thousand years passed between when he died and the earliest copy of any of his writings that we have. Notice only ten copies. Are we beginning to see a pattern? Historically, individuals are looked upon with great respect and their writings are treasured highly even though we have few copies. As you transition on down that particular list, there's Livy, there's Tacitus. I would ask you to notice Aristotle. I know in scientific circles, Aristotle is lifted to such a high position of distinction in terms of a philosopher, in terms of his scientific approach, and yet, even in Aristotle's case, 1,400 years elapsed between the earliest writing and when the man wrote. And even then, we only have 49 copies. 49. You'll notice at the right, there's still, even in all those cases, is not the slightest assessment of their uncertainty because we have so few copies of it. As you come now further along the slide, you'll notice the very bottom one is the one to which I'd turn our attention. In case you can't read it to the far left is the word New Testament. What about the 27 New Testament books? As we compare these documents to all those others that we've just listed, what is the honest, the fair conclusion? First of all, we know when they were written, roughly 50 to 100 A.D. We know the earliest copy we now have can be dated all the way back into the 2nd or 3rd century. Some of these most recent fragments take us even back into the 1st century. So in other words, you notice there's less than 100 years between when those books were actually written and the earliest copies we have. Less than 100 years. That is so much less than any of these others. And not only that, you'll notice the number of copies. It's absolutely astounding. We have well over 5,700 copies of the New Testament in terms of fragments, in terms of sections, in terms of entireties. Over 5,700 copies. Now you'll notice if people give so much consideration to Aristotle and Plato and Thucydides and Socrates and all these others, and they base their confidence on so few copies. How much more confident can we be of these 27 New Testament books that we have? You'll notice that the right is a statement of the uncertainty, or maybe I should say the certainty. 
it is nearly 100% certain that every single section and word in the New Testament is exactly in correspondence to the way that God delivered it. May I say, we can have the utmost of confidence in this book. We noted last Sunday evening how strongly reliable the Old Testament was. That helps us appreciate that the same is even more true of the New Testament. These 27 books from Matthew to Revelation, they are that which God revealed. We have sufficient numbers of evidences and copies and transcriptions and fragments that we can be certain that that is what God revealed. You'll notice as we look at all those features and figures, I hope they paint a rather glorious picture of how God has preserved this book through the centuries. So few copies of those others because people can get to heaven without them. Can't get to heaven without this one. And he has seen fit by way of preservation, by way of copies, by way of manuscripts to present that information to the human family. You know how thankful we can be for his preservation of it. As you read that New Testament, whether it be a section in Mark or whether it be a part of Second John or whether it be Revelation, we can rest assured that these books are the very ones the Holy Spirit saw fit to make sure were preserved and that you and I can read them and have them and follow them. At this point, as you close that particular slide, we come to the conclusion of our lesson this evening. This excursion into the New Testament has challenged us, I hope, in very remarkable ways to note this. First, what a blessing is those 27 New Testament books. We've learned to treasure them, and rightfully so. But in that consideration of that treasure, we notice the manuscript evidence for those books, even though they were written well over 1,900 years ago, is enormous. It is vast in comparison to any standard of the ancient world. Finally, in light of that, you and I can have unquestioned confidence in these New Testament books. It's not that certain parts you and I could question. Maybe the copyist didn't do a good job. It's not that some particular parts may wonder. Maybe there ought to be another book. Maybe there ought to be a 28th one. That isn't so. These books are the ones that are the Word of God. The question is not that we have them so much, but how are we obeying them? What about your life and mine tonight? To think about how great those books are leads us to notice they contain, of course, that which God demands. They contain the record of the greatest of lives, namely Jesus Christ. His death on the cross is your life an open testimony to the truth of it, and are we living faithfully by it? If you are, then you know how sweet a blessing that is and also the promises that it makes available. But if you aren't living faithfully in harmony to it, you can have the greatest confidence in it and you really need to make some changes. That would begin by, in fact, coming to the Master Himself. If you have never become a Christian, you need to do that tonight. You need an urgency to respond to the gospel invitation. And if we could help you do that by way of assisting you, and of course your confession and baptism, we'd help you. If you need to come back to your first love, we'd pray to God for you. The New Testament book set before us what is, of course, our standard. And it's still remarkable that in Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12, 
It is said that the books shall be opened. This is one of them that will be opened. When it comes to those living in this Christian era, my life and yours is going to be judged by the contents of this book. We won't be judged by the law of Moses. We won't be judged by the patriarchal era. We won't be judged by any of the other Jewish writings of the ancient era. We'll be judged by this book. Can't we be thankful that God has preserved it? And I can make the necessary adjustments in life now. If you need to make some of those adjustments starting tonight, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?